Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, June the 3rd. On this Sunday, Canada, Mexico, and the European Union retaliate against President Trump's aluminum and steel import tariffs. Is this the first salvo in a trade war? And what will it mean for NAFTA? Then, U.S. business leaders warn their country could lose a million jobs over trade retaliation from this country and others. But the U.S. economy is booming, so does Donald Trump even care? And Ontarians go to the polls on Thursday, and they are torn about who to vote for. We'll look at who's up and who's down. But first, Washington punched, Ottawa punched back, with dollar-for-dollar tariffs on U.S. products after tariffs were slapped on our steel and aluminum. It's a remarkable change for this country with a history of friendly trade now deemed a national security risk to the United States. The Prime Minister called it a turning point. We expect that in the coming days uh, there will be many members of Congress, many uh, governors uh, who will be making representations directly to the White House on uh, the negative impacts of uh, the measures that uh, the U.S. has put forward. Uh, we talked about how uh, difficult this was going to be in terms of a turning point uh, uh, in the Canada-U.S. relationship. Joining me now is Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland. Ms. Freeland, we were attacked. We hit back, but we were attacked economically. President Trump is not backing down. What makes you think he will? Well, you know, Eric, I think the starting point is where you started, which is to understand the nature of this action on Thursday by the United States, to understand the degree to which this is really unprecedented. Mm -hmm. This is not a normal trade irritant. This is the U.S. using a national security consideration to impose tariffs, not only on Canada, on all of its closest allies. I mean, these are tariffs that have been imposed on all of the NATO allies of the United States. And the reason I emphasize NATO, and in our case, I also emphasize NORAD, I also emphasize our collaboration on the Korean Peninsula, is because the argument, the pretext used under Section 232 is that somehow steel and aluminum from Europe, from Canada, poses a national security threat to the United States. That is absolutely absurd. And it is also, Eric, illegal under international trade law. Putting that aside, though, President Trump will understand that. He doesn't care. So, you know, and he's obviously been immune sometimes to pressure even from within his own country. Are you getting any sense that there's something going to well up that will cause him to change where he's at now? Well, you know, Eric, I, I have two responses to that. Uh, the first one is there have been some very heartening responses already in the United States. We have heard from some senior Republicans, people like Orrin Hatch, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, people like Kevin Brady, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And these are two key people because it is through their two committees that any trade legislation is passed. And both of them immediately on Thursday spoke out against this action. That's a big deal. They're both Republicans. They're both senior voices in their party. The other thing, Eric, that at the end of the day gives me comfort is, you know, the Prime Minister spoke yesterday about common sense, and I am a big believer in common sense. And I'm also a big believer ultimately in, you know, 
economic determinism, that economic relationships that make sense are economic relationships that continue. And that is certainly the case with the Canada-US economic relationship. And I would say more broadly, that is the case with the economic relationships governed by the WTO, the economic relationships between the US and its closest transatlantic allies in Canada. You, you're, obviously, you were ready for this with the tariffs that you answered back with. Um, and now you're going to the WTO. What uh, will you and can you, with maybe the Mexicans and the EU, achieve with that? Is, it, is there a kind of a concerted effort? So you're quite right. On Friday, uh, as we said we would, uh, we raised a case at the WTO, and we also raised a case under Chapter 20 of NAFTA. Uh, this is something important to do because we are big believers in the rules-based international order, very much including when it applies to trade. Uh, and you're also quite right that we have, in the lead up to Thursday and in the, all the time since, been working very, very closely with our European partners, with our Mexican partners. Cecilia Malmstrom, the EU Trade Commissioner, is a good friend of mine because we work together so much on CETA. And I've been, I would say, in constant touch with her uh, this week. Uh, and the same is true of Ildefonso Guajardo, the Mexican Economy Minister. So, you know, this is really we are Canadian, so we inevitably see this through a Canadian lens. But at the end of the day, this isn't about Canada. Uh, this is about the United States and this U.S. administration and a posture it has chosen to take with regard to its closest allies in the world. And it's the right thing for us to be working closely with those allies who are our allies too. And many people would say it's really about this president. Um, he, you know, these, these are not normal times. Uh, he's unpredictable in where he may go with this. He doesn't indicate that he wants to back down. Is there some way in which he can, you can help him get to where he would need to be that would satisfy Canada uh, without embarrassing him? Well, you know, uh, Larry Kudlow, uh, one of the president's senior economic advisors, did say on Friday that he saw this as a trade discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, as a conversation among friends and that, you know, he thought things could be resolved uh, in the coming weeks or months. I think he said months. Um, that's good to hear from Larry. Larry actually is an old friend of mine. We used to go on TV shows together yes. when I was a journalist in New York. Um, so, you know, we Canada is always ready to talk. Uh, and I think as a country, we have, you know, kind of part of our national character is we're good at finding win-win solutions. We're good at finding outcomes that work for everyone. And that has been our attitude towards this administration from day one. It will continue to be. But at the same time, we're also very clear that this action on Thursday was an illegal move by the United States. And we're very clear that Canada has taken a very strong response. It's the right thing to do. The, the worry has to be that Donald Trump may not be looking for a win-win. He may be even satisfied with a lose-lose as long as our lose is bigger than his lose and he can simply say we're further ahead. That said, where does this leave NAFTA? We don't seem to be at the table at the moment. Uh, he wants a fair deal, he says, or no deal at all. Like, what does this mean for NAFTA going forward? Well, you know, our position on NAFTA is as it has been from the start. Uh, and let me also Does emphasize... Does this affect NAFTA, though? Well, 
We've been very clear from the moment that the Section 232 considerations were raised that that is an entirely separate track from NAFTA. Section 232, after all, is a national security consideration. It is not meant to be about trade. So we are very clear in separating the two, and we will continue to do that. When it comes to NAFTA, uh, you know, our position has always been we want a good deal, not just any deal. We think a deal is absolutely possible, and we are prepared to continue talking about that any place, any time. I think our partners know that. All right, Minister Freeland, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you, Eric. Everybody has spats every now and again. Every family does, every country does with others. There's nothing weird about that. I think everybody will get over this in due course. That was U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross suggesting the trade dispute is a blip on the radar screen. Well, it's a very big blip for this country and others. Joining us now from Washington is Rufus Yerksa, the president of the National Foreign Trade Council that backs a rules-based world economy. He's a former deputy U.S. trade representative and deputy general of the WTO. Mr. Yerksa, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's obviously not a blip Pleasure for to Canada. Be here. Uh, uh, what is the impact, would you say, in the U.S. of the Canadian retaliation, but also the retaliation in concert with Mexico and the EU? Well, it's, it's definitely not a blip. This was an unprecedented action using a national security excuse to take sweeping restrictions that could be very, very long-term restrictions, not really consistent with a WTO system. I think it's important to, to point out that most U.S. manufacturers and U.S. industry don't support this action by our own administration. Uh, I'm representing uh, an alliance of, uh, of a huge number of companies and, and industry sectors that are adversely affected by this action because it's raising steel prices in the United States, uh, raising aluminum prices, <clears throat> obviously uh, causing potential retaliation against us. I think the figures we've seen is up to 40 billion in U.S. exports in markets around the world that are now subject to this, uh, these tariffs because it's not just Canada, Mexico, and Europe. It's also uh, seven or eight other countries that have been hit with these, including Japan and Korea and a number of others. So we're very concerned about the retaliation against our own exports, but also how this will raise manufacturing costs for industries from autos to oil and gas to the food. Uh, products industry, a number of industries that use steel. Construction, for example, which is one of the biggest industries in the United States and which uses a lot of steel and aluminum. You know, we're, under ordinary circumstances, we wouldn't be here at all with an administration that we might have seen from the past. But at the same time, even all of these arguments that we're hearing now and the retaliation coming forward, do you have a sense of how Donald Trump might respond to all this? Well, we, we've certainly seen him <clears throat> try to up the ante, for example, when China announced that it would retaliate on the uh, announced $50 billion of 301 tariffs. Uh, the president immediately said he was going to uh, raise tariffs on an additional $150 billion. So, you know, there is the question here of whether the administration will even try to further escalate this. In, in, in our view, that would sort of compel countries like Canada to, to uh, to up the ante as well. And, and, you know, from industry's point of view, these kinds of trade wars are really bad because, you know, everybody starts closing their markets. Global supply chains get uh, adversely hit. 
In the end, American workers will suffer enormously from that. You know, one in five American jobs depends on trade and exports. Um, one in three ag acres of American agriculture are planted for export. Uh, the U.S. needs global markets. You know, I like to point out that of the world's 7.6 billion consumers, 7.3 billion of them live outside the United States. We can't really be competitive in a global economy unless we're uh, engaged in trade, and especially with our best allies and partners who we ought to be working closely with. Uh, we ought to be working collectively to put pressure on China, which is the biggest problem in steel and aluminum because of its overcapacity. We ought to be working together and forcing China to address many of its uh, unfair trade practices. Canada can't win a trade war, as you say, if, they, if, they, if, it, if things get ratcheted up. What would that mean for this country, and can we afford to take the risk, even the risk that we're taking now, or was it simply necessary? I mean, you know, obviously there's an adverse impact on Canada, but, you know, an adverse impact on the country that raises its own duties, too. <clears throat> you know, history is uh, littered with examples of countries that tried this kind of economic nationalism using, uh, you know, its, its economic and national security to close its market, and um, it has repeatedly failed to, uh, to produce positive results. Uh, the last time the U.S. tried it was in the 1930s, and that was obviously a disaster. So I, I understand why Canadians are concerned about why would we uh, retaliate by, by bringing these tariffs. And, you know, hopefully uh, people, wiser heads will prevail at some point, and we will start defusing these uh, problems rather than exacerbating them. Is this reversible? Like, like the, you know, some have said it's an assault on globalized trade. Is this something that can simply be rolled back uh, when cooler heads prevail? Or are there changes underway that have been unleashed now? I, I think nothing is irreversible, but there certainly are consequences to what's happened so far. And I don't see any signs that the Trump administration is, is backing away from a a different interpretation of trade, one which really discounts trade agreements, discounts trade rules, and relies more on a kind of a brute force uh, uh, unilateralist approach. Um, I think that's going to have to change because it's not going to be uh, successful for the U.S. Uh, and, and, and really, it's, it's probably strengthening China's hands uh, and making it less likely that the U.S. and its trading partners, its traditional allies, can, can be successful in, in resolving problems of, of unfair trade or of subsidies or of other problems in the trading system. You know, this notion that the U.S. has been a victim, I mean, we're one of the great beneficiaries of the global economy, and many uh, U.S., as I said, U.S. jobs depend on it, but also, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the leadership that the U.S. has played in building a kind of system that reflects our sort of market-oriented um, uh, economic system, that's what we ought to be trying to secure, strengthen, and expand, working with partners like Canada. Uh, so it's, is but, it irreversible? Uh, no, but it's a, it's a serious setback. Let me just get your thoughts in a, in a few seconds here on, uh, on NAFTA. Is, uh, do you see Canada getting or having to give up something uh, on NAFTA? Will it have to be on agriculture to, to get a deal here? 
Well, I think Canada has some res some restrictive policies, and you you know you know there are some in agriculture, there's some in the intellectual property realm, and other things where it ought to be uh, recognizing the need to uh, to sort of deal with those in the context of a strengthening and improvement of NAFTA. But you know, from a point of view of the companies I represent, we want to see a NAFTA that goes forward rather than one that goes backwards. In other words, one that will further strengthen and make more open the North American economy rather than uh, starting to dismantle the benefits of NAFTA. So we've got some, some problems with our own administration's approach, but I think Canada is going to have to be forthcoming on some issues for sure. Uh, right now, I don't see that the atmosphere that's been created by steel and aluminum and, and other issues is, is conducive to, to wrapping up NAFTA. Uh, but we were close to being able to get a, a positive, uh, you know, forward-looking NAFTA agreement in place, and I hope we can get back to that once uh, we get beyond these problems. All right, Rufus Yerksa, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. In four days, close to five million ballots will be cast for the next government of Ontario. Progressive Conservative leader Doug Ford began the campaign with a healthy lead, but the NDP's Andrea Horvath has closed the gap, making this election much more of a race than many expected. And who would have thought the governing Liberals would fall behind in so many ridings as the so-called progressive voters wrestle with what to do? Joining us now from Toronto is the Toronto Star Queen's Park Bureau Chief Rob Benzi. Rob, uh, you've seen the polls, uh, the NDP and the Conservatives neck and neck-ish and the Liberals further back. In your crystal ball, how do you see this kind of evolving right up to Election Day? Well, you know, Eric, I think at this point it's too close to call. If the election were held today, and of course it's still a few days away, I think Mr. Ford uh, and the Progressive Conservatives would win the most seats, but I'm not sure they're going to win that elusive 63 that you need for a majority, at least not at this juncture. Uh, it might, that might change between now and Thursday, but I think that at this point uh, they are probably safely ahead in you know, maybe 50 or 60 seats. I don't know if they're over the top uh, to get to a majority in a 124-seat legislature. Well, let's just talk about those numbers for a second then, because let's say they were at 59. It means the other parties, to catch them, would have to put themselves all together. Could the NDP and the Liberals, would, would that work out? Because there are a lot of progressive voters, more progressives than conservatives, who would probably be saying to them, you form a government, you get yourselves together. Yeah, definitely, that's a possibility. And remember, it's not just the, the NDP who will probably f finish with the first or, mo or second most number of seats, and then the Liberals will likely finish in third. There's also the possibility of the first Green Party MPP. Mike Schreiner, the Green leader, uh, looks like he could win in Guelph. And if that happens, you could have almost a, uh, an Italian-style uh, parliament where th you know, three parties are, are joined together uh, against one party to, to, uh, to form a so-called majority government. I don't think there'll be any sort of formal coalition, but I don't think uh, that the Liberals, if they have the power, would, would uh, let Doug Ford be Premier of Ontario. They would back uh, Andrea Horvath's New Democrats. Is there more of a swing vote calculation in the minds of some progressive voters this time? than Because than it's, exist, it's existed in the past, but is there more of it this time? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, strategic voting always happens. It usually uh, benefits the Liberals, though, in, in Ontario in recent elections, where the Liberals have managed to scare, scare uh, voters uh, into the prospect of a, of a progressive conservative government, whether it was Tim Hudak in 2014 or 2011 or John Tory in 2007. Um, they've managed to convince people that a vote, a vote for the NDP is a wasted vote. You should vote for the Liberals, and therefore everything will be fine. Those dastardly Tories won't form government. That's changed in this election. Uh, no one in their right mind is thinking that the Liberals are going to win outright. So I think the, the progressive voter is being, is, is being asked to vote NDP in different ridings. Now, that, the thing is, though, in some ridings, I was in Don Valley West uh, uh, on Friday, and that's Kathleen Wynne's riding. And I was speaking to voters there who were considering voting NDP, but they are worried about splitting the progressive vote, so they're going to stick with the Liberals. That's, uh, unfortunately for the Liberals, that's not a, a, a typical sentiment for liberal candidates in most ridings where it's uh, where the NDP and the liberals are splitting the vote it's it's tacking toward the NDP yeah uh, in a funny way if the the more votes that stay with the party that's in third place uh, they deny the party in second place the chance to catch uh, the the conservatives what do you think of the conservative strategy in this campaign we we asked uh, Doug Ford to come on this show week after week and we were turned down they've had a strategy in terms of how they deal with the media and they've had a lead to start with what do you make of it I think they've tried a strategy like they were running Stephen Harper, frankly, and he has a lot. They have a lot of uh, smart folks who are around Stephen Harper who are around Doug Ford, and they think and, and they thought and think that this is the right way to go. I'm not sure it's helped Mr. Ford uh, his brand, though. I mean, he was he is known as a straight shooter and a and a freewheeling kind of guy who wasn't afraid of the media, and now they have him in a bubble, and I'm not sure. I mean, he may win. He may win a majority. But if he doesn't win, I think that there will be a lot of people in that campaign uh, on Friday saying, should we have done something different? Should we have let Doug be Doug? I spoke to a lot of Tories during this election who felt that that was something that they would have liked to have seen. Because I think uh, Mr. Ford is one of those works on all politicians. And he gets cut a lot of slack from voters because he's a populist and he's plain speaking. But they've boxed him in and, and bubbled him up in such a way that he, he, he's, they've, they've robbed him, I think, of his authenticity. And I don't think that's been helpful to him. Um, look, they may look like geniuses on Friday and it, if they win a majority. But if they don't, uh, I know a lot of people who are going to be criticizing them. Where, where are the liberals in this? If, uh, if you're a liberal and you're thinking that uh, you know, we may finish third this time around, do you prefer a conservative government or an NDP government in terms of your own rebuild for the Liberals? That's a very good question, Eric. And that's, the, that's a, an interesting point, because I know Liberals who do not want to join with the NDP in any sort of informal coalition uh, or even support a Liberal minor, or a, an NDP minority government. They would rather see, privately they'll say this, they won't say it publicly, they'd rather see a Doug Ford majority, because they don't think that that will be a particularly good thing for the progressive conservative brand over the next four years. Give them four years to rebuild, move back to the center, uh, because they have tacked very far to the left so that the NDP and the, and the Liberals kind of bleed into one another. And there really isn't a centrist alternative right now uh, for Ontario voters. Uh, that's the sentiment a lot of people uh, share. So I think the liberals, there are liberals who would like to see 
Ford win outright as long as they have enough seats to form a, a official party status of, of eight and then live to fight another day in 2022. Uh, there are others, however, who are you know, progressives first and foremost, and I would count Kathleen Wynne uh, among this group, and they would way rather see the NDP win than have Doug Ford, uh, and they would stop Ford at any cost. And I think that that's an interesting kind of schism in the Liberal Party, and that will manifest itself more on Friday uh, if the results are the way what we think they're going to be. All right. Well, I guess first, as they say in sports, uh, they they have to play the game, and uh, we'll watch that on yeah. Thursday, and then we'll be able to make <laughs> these calculations. Uh, Rob, thanks for your insight. Thank you, Eric. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tune in again next week for another West Block.